You can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians as we return to our study in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. We find ourselves in chapter 6, specifically verses 1 to 3 tonight. But I want to pick up the reading in chapter 5 at verse 15 and read to chapter 6, verse 9, just to remind us of the context in which we're dealing. So uh, beginning in Ephesians 5 at verse uh, 15. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her, or sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart, as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God and Holy Father, we thank you for the written word. We thank you that it's given by inspiration of God, that it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. So guide us now by the Holy Spirit, forgive us and cleanse us from all sin and unrighteousness, and help us to see the glory of your truth, to see the the fact that it extends not just to adults, but to children. It extends to Jew and to Gentile. It extends universally because it is the word of the living and true God. Bless us now, we pray, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Well, it's been some time since we've been in Ephesians. So just by way of reminder, if you look back at chapter 4, verse 1, we see that we're in the practical section of Paul's letter. So in chapters 1 and 2, he engages in doctrine. He sets forth our salvation, how we came by God's grace to a place of forgiveness and a place of uh, righteous standing in our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 3 is a bit of a transition. He indicates his place and role in redemptive history. And then in chapters 4 to 6, he gets practical. So notice in chapter 4 at verse 1, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. So we are to walk differently than when we were unsaved. If you go back to chapter 2, specifically in verse 1, you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world. So in Christ Jesus now, we're supposed to walk in a manner that is consistent with our high calling in Christ Jesus. He carries this theme along. Notice in verse 17 of chapter 4, this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. So Paul's emphasis here is up upon our conduct. We've received God's grace. We have by God's grace believed the gospel. We have been justified. We have been forgiven. We have received that righteousness. Now we're to live in light of that truth. And then in chapter 5, he gets specific again. He tells us in chapter 5, specifically in verses 1 to 7, to walk in love. Then specifically in verse 8 and following, he tells us to walk in light. And then in verses 15 to 21, he tells us where to walk in wisdom. And so notice specifically in that section in chapter 5, verses 15 to 21. He tells us in verse 17, Do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he goes on to flesh out or indicate or demonstrate what filling with the Spirit looks like. And he does so in verses 19 to 21. Notice, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So that's a general reference there, submitting to one another in the fear of God. But now Paul does something that was common to writing and literature in that present gener or in that particular generation. He does what's called a household code. He brings to bear truth upon the ethics in our day-to-day -day life. So the general statement of verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God, is now brought to concrete reality in the husband-wife relationship, in the parent-child relationship, and in the master-servant relationship. So from 5.22 to 6.9, he deals with those categories. We've already covered the husband and wife. This evening, we're going to look at children and parents, specifically the children aspect. And God willing, next time, we'll take up the parental role in verse 4. So notice, in chapter 6, verses 1 to 3, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. I think there's two things at work here. First, the rightness of obedience the rightness of obedience in verse 1, and then secondly, the requirement of God's law in verses 2 and 3. So he appeals to the fifth commandment, which shows us that the commandments of God, the decade,
Decalogue, the, the Ten Commandments, are not confined to Old Covenant Israel. They are transcovenantal. Whether you're in the Old Covenant or you're in the New Covenant, they are applicable. They're applicable to Jews in the Old. They're applicable to Jews and Gentiles in the New. They're applicable today. And so the Apostle appeals to that fifth word to bring to bear upon the children in the congregation of their duty with reference to their parents. But let's look first at the rightness of obedience in verse one. Notice the addressees, children. Children in this context was different than other contexts. Again, there were household codes where philosophers and ethical teachers or teachers of ethics would tell people how they were supposed to live. You've perhaps heard of Aristotle. He had a famous book on ethics. There were others like him. They didn't typically address children. They just assumed that children would toe the line but they didn't go out of their way to address children, whereas the Apostle Paul does. And notice as well that the Apostle Paul doesn't say sons, he says children. In other words, he gives dignity to the individual, whether a boy or whether a girl. They are children, they are in the context of the local church. That is assumed by Paul. Notice, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't say, okay, pastor, I want you to stop the sermon or the reading of the epistle. I want all those children that are, that are schlepped off into another room in children's church, I want you to bring them up now because I want to address them. No, the assumption was is that children, along with parents, were under the preaching and the reading of God's holy word. This reflects what you find in Old Covenant Israel, specifically Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 9 to 13. It was all the assembly, including the little ones. In the book of Nehemiah, in chapter 8, when the, the Levites give the reading in the sense of the law, it's those uh, mothers and fathers and all who could understand. They were under the word of God. So the apostle Paul assumes that children are going to be present in the context of Christian worship. So there's not this segregation, there's not this removal from, there's not a separate sort of activity for the children during the preaching of God's word or the reading of God's word. No, they're to be under that word. They're to learn, they're to understand, they're to know. Whether they get every jot and tittle out of it, you as parents need to enforce the responsibility or rather enforce the duty that they listen, that they pay attention, that this is something that is under God and this is something that is ultimately good and beneficial for their soul. So the apostle assumes their presence and then he gives the particular exhortation or command when he says, obey your parents in the Lord. Now, I don't think he means obey your parents, parents that are in the Lord. In other words, obey only Christian parents. I don't think that's the argument. I think it's obedience that is in the Lord. In other words, children in the church at Ephesus that were converted had a religious obligation in, in, in obedience to their parents. And notice there's no qualification. I'm gonna make a qualification in a moment because I think it's necessary, but there's no qualification. Obey your parents in the Lord. On four out of 10 things? On eight out of 10 things? No, obey your parents in the Lord. What's your responsibility as children? It's not to, to, to mouth off. It's not to reject parental authority. It's not to rebel against that. It's not to be a lawyer and say, well, you know, that's just not gonna work for me and I've got 10 reasons why. 
sure some of you are raising future lawyers that we at least were convinced one of ours was heading, heading down that pathway as, as well as he could argue. We thought, oh, he's a shoo-in for, for that particular activity. But with reference to this, just like in the command to the wife in chapter 5, verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. There's no qualifier. There's no only in those things that you really feel like doing. Same thing with reference to children. It's not only in those things you feel like doing, but it's a general overarching exhortation. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. John Gill says, children should be subject and obedient in all things lawful, just, and good, in everything that is not sinful and unlawful by the word of God, and in things indifferent, as much as in them lies, and even in things which are difficult to perform. And this obedience should be hearty and sincere, and not merely verbal, and in show and appearance, uh, appearance nor mercenary, and should be joined with gratitude and thankfulness for past favors. That's not unreasonable perfectly legit. Your parents provide everything you have, and so it is legit that you obey them in the Lord. Now, Gil makes that sort of provision or qualification, as I do as well. We did it when we looked at Ephesians 5, 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, unless your husband commands you to sin. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, unless they command you to sin then you must obey God rather than men. You invoke that principle of Acts 5, 29. When the apostles are chided and rebuked and threatened and told not to preach the gospel there in Jerusalem because it was such an offense to the, to the unbelieving Jews. Well, what did they do? They said, well, okay, we're gonna just submit to Caesar. We're gonna submit to these unbelieving Jews. No, they said we must obey God rather than men. So when it comes to any controversy between parental command and authority and God most high, you always side with God. But in terms of not being commanded to sin, as Gil says in things indifferent, you are to, get this, obey. I'd like to dazzle you with Greek tonight and say, well, obey me, it, it, it means obey. It, it means do what they say. I know that's revolutionary because today, you know, children are given the rule of the roost and we don't ever want to, you know, affect little Johnny or, or, or Susie and, and hurt their delicate psyche. Well, that's not the world the Apostle Paul trucked in and that's not the world that, 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 that Moses, the lawgiver under God Most High, trucked in when he, when he gave the fifth commandment. Children, uh, obey your parents and the Lord. That, that's just it. There's no, well, you know, you don't really know my parents. You don't, you don't really know how I'm made up. You don't, you don't know that there's certain challenges and just obey. Just do what you're supposed to do. Listen to Solomon in the Proverbs when he bids you to, to reflect upon the reality that the way of the transgressor is hard. Or the person that curses his father and mother. What happens? The birds of the air, the ravens will peck out his eyes. In other words, parental authority is given by God Most High for specific ends, for specific purposes. It is the wisdom of the infinite mind of God Most High to station parents in your life as an authority. And so the Apostle Paul very simply, very clearly, and very much earnestly says, children, obey your parents, and then notice the rationale. He says, for this is right. It's right. You don't even have to be a Christian to see the rightness of this. You don't have to be religious to see the rightness of this. 
I think what the apostle is doing here is he's making an appeal to what we call the created order. Or in theology, we call it the light of nature. There are certain things that are hardwired in to creation. General revelation speaks to us. I think that's Paul's appeal in 529. He certainly argues from redemptive categories for the wife's submission to the husband and the husband's love for his wife, but he argues as well in light of nature categories. Notice in 529, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. In other words, it's just right. It's built in. We're image bearers of the living and true God. We don't come from the hand of God without any sort of hardwiring. We don't come from the hand of God without some sort of an operating system. We come from the hand of God bearing his image. There are certain structures in place. And then when we look around at the created order, it resonates with us that, that yeah, it's right that the children that we gave birth to, it's right that the children we feed and clothe it's right that the children that we provide shelter to, it's right that they obey. So Paul's appeal is to the light of nature here. Paul's appeal is to the rightness of the activity. Listen to Gil. He says, for this is right, children obey your parents and the Lord. It appears to be right by the light of nature, by which the very heathens have taught it. I mean, even the heathen gets it, right? Even the heathen stumbles on this fact that two-year-old Johnny doesn't have the wisdom to give the marching orders for the family. I mean, who does that, parent? You're a 35-year-old you know, man or woman. Okay, we're gonna check in with you today, Junior. Yeah, I know you've got infinite wisdom at age two, so we're spend, thinking about spending money. We've got it fitted into the budget. Well, what, what, what do you think? None of us do that. Why? Because it's not right. It's just not right. There's a pecking order in God's world. There is a, an authority structure built in by God. So back to Gil. For this is right. It appears to be right by the light of nature, by which the very heathens have taught it. And it is equitable from reason that so it should be. And it is just by the law of God. That's the category next. The requirement of the law. So we see the rightness of it, light of nature, general revelation, and then we see the requirement of the law. So what are we to conclude? There's no war between general and special revelation. Wow, they actually jive. They actually go hand in hand. They work together. So he says, and it is just by the law of God, which commands nothing but what is holy, just, and good. Matthew Poole, same sort of a vein. He says, for this is right or just every way so by the law of nature, of nations, and of God. Belgic Confession, Article 2, asks the very good question, by what means God is made known to us? Well, there's two books, according to the Belgic Confession. There's the book of creation, and then there's the book of Revelation. It says, we know him by two means. First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe, which is before our eyes as a most elegant book, wherein all creatures, great and small, are as so many characters leading us to contemplate the invisible things of God, namely his eternal power and divinity, as the apostle Paul saith, Romans 1.20. Apostle Paul says that we can know the creator, we can know him by the creature. We can argue from the effect to the cause. That's precisely what Paul does in Romans 1. So there's a light of nature or general revelation that is just right. 
It's right that Junior submits. It's right that Junior obeys. It's right that Junior doesn't challenge, that he doesn't have 15 reasons why he's not going to clean up his room today. No, sorry, Junior, sorry, pal. But the light of nature itself tells us, here's 15 reasons why you're going to clean up your room. It goes on to say, all which things are sufficient to convince men and leave them without excuse. Secondly, he makes himself more clearly and fully known to us by his holy and divine word. That is to say, as far as is necessary for us to know in this life, to his glory and our salvation. So there's no at odds between God's revelation of himself in creation and what he reveals to us in the scripture. In fact, there's glorious harmony. And the apostle has no problem appealing to light of nature arguments there in Romans 1 to argue for the existence of God and here to argue for the rightness of obedience on the part of Junior to his parental authority. Now then Paul invokes the requirement of the law. That brings us to verses 2 and 3. This is Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, and Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 16. Three things I want to observe here. First, the appeal to the law. Secondly, the explanation of the command. And then finally, the promise attached to the command. But notice the appeal. It's intriguing, isn't it? This is a, a Christian church. And yet Paul is using the Ten Commandments? Yes, absolutely. He's using the Ten Commandments. What does that demonstrate? I've already alluded to it, the trans-covenantal utility of the Ten Commandments. In other words, it's not just for the Jews in the Old Testament. The same law that was thundered on Sinai for the nation of Israel is the same law thundered to the children, the Gentile children in the city of Ephesus in the first century. Thus, it is still applicable to us. Now, we need to use the law rightly. If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 1 for a moment, the apostle gives us caution here. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, specifically verse 8. He says, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Unfortunately, I don't think we do know that anymore. And I mean broadly in terms of the church, generally speaking. There's a lot of antipathy against the law. There's a lot of you know, enmity against the law. There's a lot of bad reasoning against the law. Well, the law is no longer for us. Well, Paul says we know that the law is good, but the qualifier there is very important if one uses it lawfully. So what does that infer or imply? It means there is an unlawful use of the law. If we preach law as a means of justification, that's an unlawful use of the law. If I said to you tonight, you need to get saved, carry out the commandments of God, you know, go home, work it out, do your best, and you know, from the final analysis, God will look at that and, and accept you. That's not good. That's the killing aspect of God's law. Why is that? Because in Adam, all die. Because we are, are, are at enmity with God most high. Our minds are not subject to the law of God, nor can they be. So to preach it that way is to preach it unlawfully. But in the reformed world, we have three uses of the law. The first is what we call the civil use. And that simply means the preaching of the law as a means of restraint for creatures. In other words, the, the speed limit, for instance, I'm not saying everybody abides by that, but it functions in such a way as to restrain the recklessness of man. I mentioned last week in preaching on abortion, someone once well said, the law does not change the heart, uh, the, uh, uh, doesn't change the heart, but it does restrain the heartless. 
And the first use of the law does that. The civil or political use of the law, it's a, it's a restraint. The second use is what we call pedagogue, and that simply means child tutor. The law shows us our sin and misery. The law shows us our need for the Lord Jesus Christ. The law brings to bear upon us the reality of a guilty conscience, a guilty heart, transgression of that law, and what does it do? It causes us to see the glory of the cross. There's hope, there's blessing, there's forgiveness, there's a righteousness that avails with God, imputed by him, received through faith in his son. So the law in that regard is absolutely crucial as well. And I'm gonna end there tonight for you little ones, young people. You're not all little ones, but young people. This law shows you your need for Jesus. When you hear that, obey your parents. When you hear that, honor your father and your mother. Search your little hearts. Is that always you? Is that constantly you? Is that perpetually you? Is that exactly you? Is that entirely you? I'll go ahead and answer for you. No, it's not. So where do you go for righteousness? You don't go back to Moses, you go to Jesus. Now, having said that, the third use of law, law is called normative. So after the child tutor function of the law shows us our sin and depravity, after we see and appreciate the, the blessed cross work of our Lord Jesus, once we're saved by grace, justified freely by grace, how does the Lord Jesus deal with us? He gives us the Holy Spirit and he points us, guess, guess what? Back to the law. Why does he do that? Because it's a pattern for our sanctification. We know what pleases God when we look at those 10 commandments. We know it doesn't please God to have idols. We know it doesn't please God to be blasphemers. We know it doesn't please God to break his holy day. We know it doesn't please God to disobey our parents. We know it doesn't please God to, to, to murder or commit adultery or theft or lie or covet. So the law of God gives us a revelation of the nature of God and it functions in a normative way. How do I know what to be holy is? Well, I'm not left to guess. I'm not left to try and figure it out. The law of God is there for me. The spirit empowers and enables the justified by faith believer such that he walks according to it. Not again in order to be saved, but as a consequence of his having been saved. And so the apostle appeals to the fifth commandment, brings it to the city of Ephesus, to the church specifically, and tells children, Gentile children, you need to honor your father and your mother. So that indicates, again, that it's transcovenantal. As well, it is universal. It's not just for the Jews, but it's for Jews and Gentiles. It's not just for boys, but it's for boys and girls. It's not just for men, but it's for men and women. In other words, it's extensive. It is the revelation, at least to some degree, of the nature and the being of God. It is the, the answer to what is it that pleases God? Well, it pleases God, as I said, when you don't engage in transgression of that holy law. And then secondly, the explanation of the command. Notice what he says in verse two, honor your father and your mother. Now the word honor, Cam alluded to this in his prayer. I don't know that he saw this coming, but it, it, it means to be heavy. It means to, to be weighty, burdensome, honored. And I think the connection between honor and heavy is clear. We're not supposed to treat our parents lightly. We're supposed to treat them with honor. We're not supposed to treat God lightly. We're supposed to treat him with honor, with reverence. 
So if children obey describes the actions involved from child to parent, honor describes the inner heart disposition. You're to honor your parents. You're not to mock them. You're not to scorn them. You're not to abuse them. You're not to reject them. You're not to resist them. You're to honor them. That's the particular requirement involved at Sinai and now brought here specifically to Ephesus. So the connection between heaviness and honor is clear. We're not to treat our parents lightly, but esteem them and realize their worth in our lives. And it means the connotation specifically is to make honorable, to honor, and to glorify. And notice, honor your father and mother. Look back for just a moment at 522. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That doesn't mean she's, you know, horrible. Doesn't mean she's wicked. It doesn't mean she's evil and vile and second class. It means that she has a particular role related to her husband. She has a particular role alongside of her husband with reference to her children. So children, you're to honor your father and your mother. Again, this would be a bit revolutionary in terms of philosophy and ethics in this time frame. Women didn't get the sort of treatment that Paul is giving them here. Now you might as a woman say, well, I'm not sure that, that's the kind of treatment I want. Well, you should repent because that's the kind of treatment that God sanctions, God commands, and God is given ultimately for your good. But with reference to the command, it reflects what we find in the Old Testament. Honor your father and your mother. And again, the ancient Near Eastern codes in Old Testament times, do you think they gave a lot of you know, dignity to women? Do you think they gave a lot of equal authority in terms of husband, wife, uh, uh, parental authority toward their children? No, this is, this is beautiful stuff. So with reference to this admonition, there's a few other passages to look at in the Old Testament. So go back to Leviticus, I'm sorry, Exodus 21. So remember the, the, the function of Exodus 21 to 23. It concretely applies the principles of Exodus 20. So we've got the giving of the Decalogue or the 10 words or 10 commandments in Exodus chapter 20. And then the question comes, well, how do we apply these things in civil society? Well, 21.1 tells us, now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. And then it gives concrete application. Notice in 21.15, he who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. And then again, excuse me, in verse 17, and he who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Turn over to Leviticus 19, Leviticus chapter 19. And note the close connection here. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 3, Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and keep my Sabbaths, I am the Lord your God. Now, we typically categorize the fifth commandment in what we call the second table of the law. So the first four commandments are our duty to God. So no idolatry, no blasphemy, no Sabbath breaking. And then the latter six are our duty toward man. Honor your father and mother, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not uh, lie, do not covet. But that fifth kind of occupies a foot in both grounds, right? I mean, I'm not suggesting it's a first table thing, but it's a great transition between the two tables. Because the parental authority represents God. And if you're going to struggle in the home as a child with parental authority, you're probably going to struggle outside of the home with any kind of authority. It 
just the way it is. I mean, again, there's exceptions. You know, some people struggle as kids, they get converted, and they become, you know, really wonderful human beings. But in terms of the light of nature, if you resist parental authority, which comes to you in the context of love, you're likely to have problems in a workplace where the boss doesn't love you. You're likely to have problems in society as a whole where people don't care about you. So there is a close connection between submission as a child to parental authority and, you know, a happy life down the path. And, and that's what is enjoined upon us specifically in terms of the rationale. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that every child that always renders obedience is only going to ever have a great life. No. Axiomatically, however, in terms of God's general providence, again, there's exceptions to every rule. But in God's general providence, when, when you do what you're supposed to, life seems to go a little better. I think it was Ronald Reagan that said, the harder I work, the luckier I've been. You get that, right? It's not luck. Things don't just happen. You've got to put in a bit of effort. So fathers and mothers occupy a place of God-given, God-sanctioned authority in the home. So every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. And then again, Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 9. This is not isolated. Uh, Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 9. For everyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood shall be upon him. And then turn to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is most helpful parents for instructing children in the wisdom of Christ most high. It is a wonderful book. It speaks often to the parent-child relationship. And notice specifically in chapter 15. Just cover a few of these texts. 1520, a wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish man despises his mother. Proverbs 17, verse 25, a foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. Proverbs 19 and verse 13, a foolish son is the ruin of his father and the contentions of a wife are a continual dripping. 1926, he who mistreats his father and chases away his mother is a son who causes shame and brings reproach. And then I've already alluded to 3017, Proverbs 30, specifically at verse 17. Notice what this wise man says, the eye that mocks his father and scorns obedience to his mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles will eat it. And then one other passage, you can turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. So we're considering what's called a household code in Ephesians 5, 22 to 6, 9. That's pretty commonplace. Again, in philosophy and ethics at the time, there would be these instructions given to various people groups on how they were to live their lives. Well, there's also what Paul invokes, and they're called vice lists. In other words, if these are the virtues you're supposed to carry out in this household situation, here's the vices that you're supposed to resist. You're supposed to reject. And in Romans 1, basically what he's illustrating is man's rebellion against the living and true God. He knows that God exists. God has made it manifest to him, but he has rejected it. He has resisted it. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So notice what God does is he gives them over. 
And as he gives them over, they engage in all manner of wickedness. I've always thought that when you see conduct like we read here in Romans chapter 1, the question in society, the question isn't, I wonder if God's going to judge us. The question is probably, or not the question, the answer is probably, he's judging us right now. When we see the types of lawlessness that is promoted, when we see the kinds of rebellion and transgression of the law of God, when you take that seventh commandment and see how it's being twisted and abused and, and distorted, when you see the, the, the lack of concern for human life and abortion and, and euthanasia, I don't think it's a question of, well, I wonder if God's going to judge Western civilization. Kind of looks like that's precisely what we're looking at because verse 24, God gave them up. Verse 26, God gave them up. Verse 28, God gave them over. And then notice in verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil mindedness, they are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things. And then notice, disobedient to parents, undeserving, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. This disobedience to parents is all, it, it is a, a, a vile transgression. I just don't think we get that. You see some kid losing his mind in Walmart and yelling at his parent? That's not funny, brethren. That's pathetic. That's sad. Again, that kid probably, I mean, they may not need to put aside money for university. Uh, they might need to put aside money to visit him in jail. I, that's not good. Again, if a child is not restrained, the father said, if you haven't broken their will by two years old, you've lost them. I think that's severe. I think that that's a, a statement that I wouldn't you know, endorse, but I get the sentiment. I get the reality. Train up a child in the way he should go. There, and, and we're going to deal with this when we get to 6-4. Fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath, but, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. The light of nature teaches them lots of things, but special revelation is absolutely crucial for bringing them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. So all that to say, with reference to Ephesians 6, we have transcovenantal utility universally applied to Gentile children in Ephesus with the specific admonition that they obey, because the light of nature shows this, and that they honor because the fifth commandment demands this. And then notice, in terms of the promise attached to the command, look at how he responds here. Look how he continues. Honor your father and your mother, and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. The first commandment suggests what? Other commandments, right? It's the first in a series of commandments, namely nine others. There is a consistency and a wholeness to the law. Now, there's a promise attached to the second commandment, but it's a negative sanction. It is the threat of punishment and it probably extends to the entirety of the 10 words. This is the first positive promise with reference to the commandment. And then notice what he does specifically here. He says that it may be well with you and you may live long on what? On the earth. Now, in the Old Testament setting, 
at Sinai and on the plains of Moab and the giving of the law in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, what was the promise appended or attached? That you may live long in what? In the land that the Lord your God has given you. Wasn't that central in the whole redemptive plan in the Old Testament? You're in Egypt, you're in bondage. God made this promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he's going to give you this land of Canaan. He's going to give you this land of inheritance. Well, what does Paul do? He universalizes that. Again, it's not just the Ten Commandments for Jew as Jew in the land of Canaan. It is the Ten Commandments for human as human, wherever he or she finds himself. And again, the promise isn't formulaic. You turn in, you know, 18 years of solid obedience and you're going to get the best jobs. You're going to have the best life. That's not it. You can't treat it formulaic. I think people do this with the Proverbs and they get a bit exasperated. Well, you know, Solomon says to live this way and I live that way and, and it just didn't happen. No, you got to allow for the reality that this is a sin-cursed world. That there are a lot of things that can go wrong. Asaph speaks to that in Psalm 73. He said, I saw the righteous suffer and I saw the unrighteous prosper. It was just a vexing thing for me. So the, 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 the Proverbs of Solomon and these particular statements, they're not formulaic. You can't say to God, well, you know, I, I did render 18 years of good, solid obedience to my parents, and I can't get beyond a minimum wage job. What, what, what's happening here? Again, you cannot treat those promises that way. But in the general providence of God, for those who do what God calls them to do, it may be well with you and may you, you may live long on the earth. As Hodge says, it's the usual course of his providence. The usual course. Again, bad things happen. Sometimes people get hit by cars. Sometimes, you know, horrific things happen. Edie says it is a principle of the divine administration and the usual course of providence. But I think interesting to note is this expansion upon this land promise. See, if we didn't have the apostolic use of the Old Testament, then we wouldn't know how to deal with those promises made to Israel in the Old Testament. But how does Paul and Peter and James and John apply Old Testament promises to Old Covenant Israel? They take those Old Testament promises and they apply them to New Covenant Israel, which is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's not this radical separation between Jews and Gentiles as separate peoples of God, but Jesus is the true Israel of God, and those who by grace believe on him are in union with him. So promises received by him are given to his church, given to his people. So the Ten Commandments are operative. The Ten Commandments are functioning. The Ten Commandments are for us, provided we use them lawfully. Not as a means of justification, but certainly with reference to a civil use, a pedagogical use, and a normative use. So all that to say, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then honor your father and your mother. So both things are addressed. So you might engage in the outward act of compliance, but your heart may be at odds. See, God doesn't leave anything sort of untouched or undealt with. It's not just the picking up of the socks and transporting them to the laundry basket. It's the heart disposition. It's not just the cleaning the garage, because dad said so, but it's the heart disposition. You see, you've got that children obey your parents in the Lord for, for this is right. There's a rightness to it, but there's an honoring. There's an esteem. There's a respect. There's a reverence. And I love the way Gill makes that observation with a thankfulness and a gratitude for favors received in the past. 
it, it, it again, it's just right. It's the way things ought to be. John Calvin is in, in his institute said, those who abusive, abusively or stubbornly violate parental authority are monsters, not men. That's pretty hardcore. Uh, but again, imagine that kid in Walmart who doesn't get a Snickers bar and he starts hitting his mother. You're not supposed to hit your mother. That, that, that's just unthinkable in, in God's world, in God's creation. That, that is monstrous behavior. Animals don't hit their mother animals. They, they just don't. It, it's unthinkable. It, it's right for a baby cat to esteem its mother cat. And yet humans come along and because of our depravity and our inadamness, we reject and resist parental authority. Well, kids, if that describes you to some degree tonight, then go to Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. The killing aspect of the fifth commandment shows that when it comes time to obey, when it comes time to honor, you might likely come up short. So with that knowledge in your mind, flee to the Savior King, flee to the Lord Jesus Christ, look to him in faith and you will receive forgiveness and you will receive a righteousness that avails with God. And then once that happens, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right and honor your father and your mother. When you sin, because you probably will, confess it, forsake it, and you will find mercy. Well, let us close in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the consistency that we find between general and special revelation and the consistent we, uh, consistent we, uh, consistency we find between old and new covenants. We thank you for your law. Help us to use it lawfully. And I pray very much for the children and the young people in our congregation. We thank you. We know that children are a gift given by you. And God, we pray that you'd help us as parents and grandparents to bring them up in the way that we're supposed to and just give them hearts to, to hear the truth as it is in Jesus, to believe on him in their early days. And may they indeed know the joy of the Lord as their strength. Bless our homes, bless our families, bless us as a local church and be glorified in our midst. And we pray through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We'll close with a brief time of meditation.